From New York, this is Democracy Now! We have now finished the meeting and the league has not offered a minimum that compensates the recognition that our players deserve. Therefore, there is no agreement and the strike is still on. After winning the World Cup, women's soccer players in Spain have gone on strike over pay as calls grow for the head of Spain's soccer federation to resign after he forcibly kissed Spanish soccer star Jenny Hermoso during the recent World Cup trophy ceremony. We'll look at what's become the Me Too moment for Spanish sports. Then to Mexico, where the Supreme Court has decriminalized abortion at the federal level. Mexico is an incredibly misogynistic country that still has deeply rooted traditional ideals. Abortion being legal and having a legal context that supports our decisions represents a big change. And we look at the dire conditions inside the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta, where Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants were recently booked. Ten prisoners have now died in the jail's custody just this year, the latest on Sunday. What we see happening in Fulton County is just by entering the jail, some of our inmates are literally being convicted of a death and given a death sentence because of entering into this space. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Joe Biden and leaders of other G20 nations are gathering in India's capital, New Delhi, for a weekend summit that will focus on international debt, food security and the climate crisis. Biden is meeting today with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi ahead of the summit. Chinese President Xi Jinping is not attending and has instead sent China's premier to the gathering. Ahead of the summit, the British charity Oxfam accused G20 countries of failing by a wide margin to slash greenhouse gas emissions below levels needed to prevent a climate catastrophe. Those fears were echoed by U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres earlier this week at the Africa Climate Summit. To the large emitters, to the G20 countries responsible for 80 percent of the emissions that we'll be meeting this week in Delhi, assume your responsibilities. Developed countries must commit to reaching net zero emissions as close as possible to 2040. In China, remnants of Typhoon Haikui struck Hong Kong Thursday, bringing widespread flooding and triggering landslides. More than six inches of rain fell on Hong Kong in less than an hour, the fastest rate of precipitation since records began in 1884. In Brazil, the death toll from a cyclone that brought flash flooding to southern states earlier this week is approaching 40. In the Mediterranean, at least 18 are dead from unprecedented storms that dropped over a year's worth of rain in less than 24 hours over some areas. On Thursday, helicopter crews were dispatched in parts of Greece to rescue residents who were trapped on their rooftops. In the Atlantic, Hurricane Lee has rapidly intensified to become this year's first Category 5 hurricane, with sustained winds of up to 165 miles per hour. Forecasters say Lee will remain north of the Caribbean islands, but could potentially strike the U.S., the Canadian East Coast, or Bermuda late next week. 
In Hawaii, residents of Maui are marking the one-month anniversary of the devastating wildfire that decimated the historic town of Lahaina. The official death toll is still at 115, with 380 people still missing, as some families are reckoning with the reality that their remains may never be found or identified. In more climate news, a record-breaking post-Labor Day heat wave is continuing to bring extreme weather alerts to tens of millions of people in the U.S. mainland. The record temperatures prompted many school districts to cancel outdoor activities like recess or to switch to online classes for the start of the school year. In Washington, D.C., the high temperature at Dulles International Airport reached triple digits for the first time ever in the month of September. I think it's not normal. I have lived here for a long time and this is incredible like we are in september waiting for fall to come and suddenly it's 100 degrees outside so it's i think it has to be with the global warming on thursday secret service officers arrested three climate activists after they tied a banner to the white house fence demanding president biden declare a climate emergency the action came ahead of a march to end fossil fuels planned for new york city on september 17th here in new york this week's heat wave was felt by fans and players at the u.s open where temperatures reached the mid-90s accompanied by intense humidity Russian player Daniel Medvedev issued a warning during his Wednesday quarterfinals match. You cannot imagine one player is going to die and then they will see, Medvedev said. On Thursday, climate activists with Extinction Rebellion delayed a semifinal tennis match by 50 minutes between Coco Gauff and Karolina Muchova as they stood up in the crowd and called for an end to fossil fuels. One protester glued their bare feet to the ground. 19-year-old Coco Gauff eventually won the match, sending her to the finals. She's the first American teenager to get this far since Serena Williams in 1999. The African-American player was questioned about the protest following her win. I mean, I think that, you know, throughout history, moments like this can, are definitely defining moments. Um, and I definitely— I believe, you know, that I believe climate in, in climate change. Hey, if you, that's what they felt that they needed to do to get their voices heard, I can't really get upset at it. Coco Goff speaking after her win at the U.S. Open. In other news from the U.S. Open, an audience member was thrown out of the stadium Monday after he chanted Deutschland über alles, a phrase associated with Hitler and Nazism, during a match with German player Alexander Zverev. He informed the chair umpire, which led to security ejecting the fan as the crowd applauded. Zverev later said, as a German, I'm not proud of that part of history, and it's not OK to do that, he said. Hundreds of people in eastern Ukraine's Donetsk region attended funerals for the 16 people killed by a Russian missile strike on a crowded marketplace Wednesday. The funerals came as a Russian attack on the city of Krivyri killed at least one person and wounded several others. In Brussels, NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg said Thursday, Ukrainian forces have been making gradual progress in their counteroffensive against entrenched Russian forces on the southern and eastern fronts. And they are making progress. Not perhaps as much as we hoped for, but they are gaining ground gradually. 
some hundred meters per day. In August, the New York Times reported the number of Ukrainian and Russian troops killed or wounded in action since Russia's invasion is approaching a half a million. In more news about Ukraine, Elon Musk, the billionaire CEO of Internet satellite provider SpaceX, secretly ordered his company to deactivate its Starlink satellites as they passed above Russian-occupied Crimea last year in order to disrupt a Ukrainian sneak attack on the Russian naval fleet. That's according to an excerpt of a soon-to-be-published biography of Elon Musk, written by Walter Isaacson, who reports Musk's decision prevented Ukrainian submarine drones from reaching their intended target, Russia's Black Sea fleet. Elon Musk reportedly feared Russia would respond to an attack on Crimea with nuclear weapons. According to Isaacson, Musk said at the time, quote, Starlink was not meant to be involved in wars. It was so people can watch Netflix and chill and get online for school and do good, peaceful things, not drone strikes, he said. North Korea announced its first tactical nuclear-armed submarine as it continues to ramp up its nuclear capabilities. This comes after reports that Kim Jong-un is planning a trip to Russia this month to discuss North Korean military aid for Putin's war in Ukraine, and where Kim could seek technical help for his nuclear and missile programs. In the United States, a federal jury has found former President Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, guilty of contempt of Congress for refusing to comply with a subpoena from the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Navarro, who faces up to two years in prison and a $200,000 fine, has promised to appeal all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has asked a court to help protect members of the special grand jury that indicted Donald Trump and 18 co-conspirators for attempting to overturn the results of the 2020 election after a far-right website published their home addresses, phone numbers and vehicle information. Willis, who is African-American, also had her information doxed online alongside racist and derogatory comments. On Thursday, D.A. Willis sent a letter to U.S. Congressmember Jim Jordan of Ohio, the Republican chair of the House Judiciary Committee, after he announced plans for a congressional probe into her prosecution of Trump and his allies. D.A. Willis wrote, quote, your attempt to invoke congressional authority to intrude upon and interfere with an active criminal case in Georgia is flagrantly at odds with the Constitution, unquote. In other news from Georgia. The family of 24-year-old Chandra Delmore is demanding justice for his death after being imprisoned at the Fulton County Jail. Authorities say he died at a hospital in custody Sunday, three days after being found unresponsive in his cell. He's the 10th person to die in custody of the notorious Fulton Jail this year. His mother spoke at a news conference Thursday. I wasn't expecting to see my son in the condition that he was in when I came out here. I thought I would be able to take my son with me back home, but um, that didn't happen. And I want answers. I want to know what happened to my son. We'll have more on 
This segment later in the broadcast. In more news from Georgia, five protesters, at least, were arrested Thursday after they chained themselves to construction equipment at the site of Cop City, a massive $90 million uh, police training complex in Atlanta. The action came in response to the indictment earlier this week of 61 activists on racketeering charges over their involvement in the movement to stop Cop City. Five of them were also indicted on domestic terrorism and arson charges. This is a Omalara Kaplan, an Atlanta artist and one of the Cop City protesters taken into custody Thursday. We have to stand up and take our own um, future into our own hands through direct actions like this. We need as many people as possible to join in this fight of nonviolent direct actions. The more of us that are willing to take the risk and come out here and put their bodies on the line to save the forest. And in Los Angeles, actor Danny Masterson has been sentenced to 30 years to life in prison for raping two women he met through the Church of Scientology. He was convicted earlier this year, though the jury was hung on a third rape charge. The two women, who have not been publicly identified, spoke at Thursday's hearing before the sentence was handed down. One of them addressed Masterson, saying, quote, when you rape me, you stole from me. That's what rape is, a theft of the spirit, she said. Actor Leah Romini, who's been an outspoken critic of the Church of Scientology since breaking ties with it and was at Masterson's trial supporting the survivors, said in a statement, quote, I am relieved that this dangerous rapist will be off the streets and I'm able to violently assault and rape women with the help of Scientology, a multi-billion dollar criminal organization with tax-exempt status, she said. Masterson is best known for his role in the sitcom That 70s Show. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Spanish state prosecutors have just filed a complaint against the head of Spain's soccer federation, Luis Rubiales, for sexual assault and coercion after he forcibly kissed Spanish soccer star Jenny Hermoso during the awards ceremony last month after the Spanish soccer team won the Women's World Cup. Earlier this week, Jenny Hermoso filed a sexual assault criminal complaint against Rubiales, who has been temporarily suspended by FIFA. So far, Rubiales has rejected calls to resign. Protesters across Spain have taken to the streets to support Hermoso. This is a crime. This is clearly sexual harassment under Spanish law, and not only Spanish law, but also under European law. The Istanbul Convention, signed by Europe in 2011 and ratified by Spain in 2014, considers this as sexual abuse, and it is a crime. On Tuesday, the Spanish Soccer Federation appointed Monse Tomé to become the first woman to serve as coach of the women's national soccer team. The announcement was made shortly after the federation fired coach Jorge Vilda, who had long faced criticism for his coaching style. Calls for Vilda's resignation grew after he expressed support for Rubiales. Spanish soccer player Veronica Boquete said has become a me-too moment for the Spanish sports. I think it's really similar to the Me Too moment. Uh, I really think that the, it's going to help to the change, because the change is already there. It was already before the, this World Cup and this uh, incident. 
um, we are in a moment of uh, changing and uh, I think that this can push us as a so society a little further and a little uh, faster. Amid this growing scandal, women's soccer players in Spain have gone on strike in a dispute over pay as calls grow for the head of Spain's soccer federation to resign. Um, again, this in the midst of the uh, sexual assault scandal. The strike began after talks broke down between the Spanish Women's Soccer League and the Players' Union over pay and working conditions. According to the union, the minimum pay for women soccer players in Spain is about $17,000 a year, compared to about $192,000 a year for male players. This is Daphne Fernandez of the Players' Union. We have now finished the meeting, and the league has not offered a minimum that compensates the recognition that our players deserve. Therefore, there is no agreement, and the strike is still on. We're also now joined by Brenda Elsie, a co-host of the feminist sportscast Burn It All Down, and co-author of Footballera, Women's Sports and Sexuality in Latin America, and editor of the book Football and the Boundaries of History. She's also a professor at Hofstra University. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Brenda. It's great to have you with us. Let's start with the absolute top news that was breaking as we went to air, um, that Spanish state prosecutors have accused Luis Robiales of sexual assault and coercion for kissing a player on the lips without her consent at the World Cup uh, victory ceremony. Uh, so he's now apparently going to be criminally charged after uh, Jenny Hermoso filed a criminal complaint against him. But the world saw what he did. Can you talk about the significance of this moment in Spain and around the world? I can't think of a moment more significant, really, in my lifetime. This has been incredible, and I'm really— Truly sorry that this has happened to such a wonderful player. Yeni Hermoso is a is a pillar of the women's football community and game. However, I am also very heartened by how much attention this story just won't go away. And that's because it's part of this real as as Veronica Boquete said in the earlier part of your segment. It's part of a huge problem that people have known that they've been working on, and it's crystallized in this moment. And as much as the Spanish Federation wants to say we did not see what we saw, we saw what we saw. Now, talk about the significance of, well, everything right now. You have the first uh, woman to coach the women's soccer team. She had actually quit the team. She had been on the coaching yeah. staff, um, but she quit among a group of other people on the women's soccer staff over Coach Vilda and demanding a complete change in coaching. And now she has been brought back to lead the team. It's, it's incredibly significant, and I think it shows two really important and exciting changes and progress. And one is the organization of women athletes as, as workers. The labor union has been huge and key in continuing to press this issue um, with the Federation. And so that has been incredibly important. And the other, the other aspect to this, of course, is that Look, I mean, the Spanish Federation wants to make sure that no structural changes really happen. 
And so this coaching is important. It's an important change. Everyone knew it had to happen, but they really need to, to have an institutional shakeup, not only in the Spanish Federation, but in FIFA. And we know this. So I think it's important to remember that, you know, it, it's not insignificant that you change a coach. It is very important. But at the same time, there needs to be independent governing bodies within global football that can respond to these, these like widespread harassment. <laughs> Uh, not only of women, but also of youth players. Spain's acting minister of culture and sport, uh, Miguel Iceta, has voiced his support for Yane Hermoso's criminal complaint against Rubiales. Last week, uh, Iceta also called backed calls for gender equity and more women leadership in Spain's soccer federation, saying the shift in culture would be enforced under a new sporting law in Spain. Se acabó. Cualquier discriminación a las mujeres, cualquier obstáculo en el deporte. It's over. No more discrimination for women. No more obstacles for women in sport. It's over. It's over, and unfortunately, that happened because of an incident that should not have taken place. We are witnessing a real social and sporting backlash, which will make this a better country. And this is Spain's Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez. He's acting now. It is true that there has been some behavior, in this case, that of Mr. Rubiales, which shows that in our country, there's still a long way to go in terms of equality and respect and the equalization of rights between women and men. So this is very interesting. Even the prime minister cannot have him fired. And this has been the issue. I mean, they fired the coach who supported Rubiales, though he had so many other issues. Um, but they couldn't get rid of Rubiales. And another fascinating aspect of this is that in Spain, across the political spectrum, um, something like three quarters of the population is demanding um, his ouster. Uh, and let me just say, in this latest news of him being criminally charged, he faces something like um, one to four years uh, in jail and a fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's layers of bureaucracy here in terms of where this football governance lies. And I would say it's labyrinthine on purpose. The idea that, you know, is, the more confusing it is, the, the less accountable people can be. And so it is going to take efforts by people outside of football to hold him accountable. And that has happened also in places like Argentina, where they also went to the Ministry of Gender and the criminal courts in Colombia, where the women minors on the U.S. or I'm sorry, on the Colombian women's national team went uh, to criminal court over a sexual assault. Um, within the Federation. So this has happened again and again. They have to go outside of the structures. Rubiales cannot represent the Spanish Federation at this point. He is suspended by FIFA, but um, it will need to take the course of the investigation, according to FIFA. Uh, you can shrug your shoulders, but if, if anyone paid attention since 2015, it is it, they FIFA has found a way to avoid responsibility in many cases, both of of corruption, embezzlement, and also in terms of gender discrimination. So those things are tied together, I think. I mean, if you can talk about the Federation first going after Yeni Hermoso, um, mm -hmm. even threatening to sue her, accusing her of lying and defamation, now the Federation attempting to distance itself um, as, uh, you know, he is about to be criminally charged. 
I, it is, it is just shocking. Um, it is, they are morally bankrupt. They have been for a long time. If they had w- listened to women, you know, for the last eight years to the players, this wouldn't have had to happen. But they absolutely refused to make any changes. And and this is what what has happened. The fact that they have patterns of abusive and bullying and, um, you know, absolutely. They're just there's such patterns of abuse that you can see, whether it's she said, he said whether it's you didn't see what you thought you saw, all of this defaming her character. This this is classic behavior of predators beyond sport. And so we can see this all play out and it happens every day to people and we don't see it. But football gives us this window onto how abusers behave. And if you can talk further about the level of abuse um, against women soccer players, and uh, even just talking about what we're seeing now, instead of them being in a stadium of tens of thousands being celebrated, the women soccer players have chosen not to play, to go on strike, because they their minimum pay is $17,000 a year compared to male soccer players in Spain, minimum pay is something like $192,000 a year. The women are the soccer stars. They just won the World Cup. And I I hate to tell you, but that's probably one of the highest paid salaries of a women's football player in the world. (laughs) If you look at the minimum salary of the NWSL in the United States, you will also find it quite shocking. So it is it it is a pervasive problem. FIFPro, the International Players Union, came out with a report right before the World Cup to document all the the salary disparities that have gone in, gone on in global football, and it is quite shocking. I mean, a soccer star like Marta never was able to play in her home country of Brazil because they've been un, unwilling to establish a, a profitable, steady women's league. Even though there's the audience there, of course, and the talent and the facilities and and everything, so it is just abject sexism. It's it, with with kind of the argument of the federation about markets and things like that. But we know that they've actually engineered it to make sure that that market doesn't thrive by doing things like not selling women's jerseys, um, by not really creating sound contracts where women's soccer can be seen. That pay disparity is um, not surprising to me. But again, it's part of this really wide spectrum of neglect. It ranges from neglect to abuse of women's soccer. I bet there was not one single federation at the Women's World Cup this year that would say that they were truly happy with their federation and felt supported. Um, Before we conclude, you mentioned in a previous answer that there are problems particularly with young players being abused. Explain, Brenda Elsie. Well, there's not many protections for minors. And we saw with Yeni Hermoso, an an incredibly established player, that there was no possibility for consent on that platform. The highest ranking official in, in her sport, in her country, was able to harm her that way. And we have youth divisions in every single federation and they have complained about harassment, abuse, labor abuse, whether it's uh, boys being housed in Brazil that have unsafe conditions that lead to fires and sometimes even deaths, like we saw in Flamengo. 
or whether it's, you know, underage uh, girls, minors that have had sexual abuse, like in the case of Colombia. So I, I see it as a really wide problem. I think these Spanish women are tremendously courageous, and I think that will benefit all of this um, system ultimately, so long as we're keeping these these men's uh, feet to the fire. You mentioned Colombia, Brenda. Um, yeah. Earlier this year, you wrote about the crisis that's embroiled the Colombian women's national soccer team and the federation with multiple reports of sexual harassment and violence against women and girl players. Can you talk about this before we wrap? Yeah, unfortunately, despite uh, how wonderful the Colombian women's national team played, they have not been able to, uh, you know, better their conditions. And Ramon Hesarun, who is the head of the Colombian Federation and also a vice president of FIFA, uh, so part of the person that would be deciding on Rubiales, uh, himself has been under investigation both for financial improprieties, but also there has been um, convictions of coaches of the under 17 team. And yet these, this person has stayed in power. He's not only is he in power, but he's there to help people like Rubiales. So the Colombian Federation has very similar issues. What is exciting about the Spanish case is we're seeing all kinds of solidarity movements throughout the world, really, um, for Jenny Hermoso. So I hope it can translate into structural change now. Well, I want to thank you for being with us. And of course, we'll continue to follow all of this. Brenda Elsie, co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down, and co-author of Footballera, uh, Women, Sports and Sexuality in Latin America, and editor of the book Football and the Boundaries of History, also professor at Hofstra University, where she's co-director of the Latin American Caribbean Studies Program. And if you haven't left us, I just have to ask you one last question about Coco <laughs> Goff. If you were following uh, what happened at the U.S. Open, um, you had the protesters— delaying her game by 50 minutes, demanding an end to fossil fuel. Coco Goff wins. She becomes the youngest to go into the finals. Um, uh, an African-American tennis player, youngest since uh, Serena Williams, like 21 years ago. Mm -hmm. And in her final comments, she actually supported the protesters. She said even if it did jeopardize her and make her lose her concentration, they were peaceful. And she supports free speech. I was so thrilled. I can't tell you how how wonderful it was to to hear her support them. We can't expect that from athletes all the time, but when it happens, it's thrilling. And I think it's the it was so interesting in the top of your show, whether it's Nazi, you know, fighting Nazi chants being said or anything else. Um, we see we're seeing people using sports as a place to to debate and to protest and to struggle. And I love it. Well, well, I want to thank you so much for being with us again, Brenda Elsie of Hofstra University in Long Island, co-host of the uh, feminist podcast, Burn It All Down. Uh, coming up, uh, we go to Mexico, uh, where the Supreme Court's decriminalized abortion at the federal level. And in the presidential race, the two top contenders are both women. So a woman will become the next president of Mexico for the first time in history. Stay with us.
the Spanish rapper Mala Rodriguez here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to Mexico, where the country's Supreme Court's issued a historic ruling that decriminalizes abortion at the federal level. In a unanimous decision Wednesday, the court stripped federal criminal penalties related to abortions. At a celebration after the ruling, student Marlene Moran welcomed the change. Mexico is an incredibly misogynistic country that still has deeply rooted traditional values. Abortion being legal and having a legal context that supports our decisions represents a big change. I hope we will be able to see a change in mentality in the population so they stop harassing pregnant people who decide to stop their pregnancies. Wednesday's ruling will not make abortions accessible throughout Mexico because laws banning the procedure are still in place in 20 of Mexico's 32 states. Pro-choice activists will now work to roll back those restrictions. For more, we're joined by two guests. In Mexico City, Rebecca Ramos is with us. She's executive director of the reproductive rights group HIRE. And Cristina Rosero is a senior legal advisor for the Center for Reproductive Rights in Bogota, Colombia, where the center was part of the lawsuit that resulted in the decriminalization of abortion in Colombia last February. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Rebecca Ramos, let's begin with you in Mexico City. Talk about the significance of what just took place in Mexico. Good morning, Amy, and good morning, Christina. It's, it's great to see you, and thank you for having me. And we're thrilled. It, this is the first time that the Supreme Court decided on abortion, and it has an impact at the national level. So right now we can uh, avoid uh, very uh, important obstacles uh, to, to provide services for the federal hospitals in the whole country. And, Christina, if you can talk about the lawsuit that your group has been involved with um, that has led to this, whether in Colombia or right now in Mexico. Of Causa Justa, who was the one who brought this issue to the light, especially because in Colombia we had three exceptions before uh, since 2006. But it was clear for us that it was not enough because women and girls, especially those who face multiple inequalities, wasn't able to uh, access abortion uh, in reality. There were a lot of obstacles. There were criminalization, especially for young women who didn't have access to information or for the uh, healthcare system. So basically for us it was clear that the elimination of the crime of abortion was extremely important to uh, eliminate most of the barriers that women and pregnant people face when go when accessing abortion. Uh, in the case of Colombia, we managed to get from the Constitutional Court a decriminalization of 24 weeks. And after that, we can uh, still apply the three exceptions that we had already implemented in 2006. This is why we are definitely celebrating this ruling in Mexico, because it shows a trend in our region in which we are understanding the importance of not regulating abortion through the penal, uh, the penal code or the criminal law and uh, in a better way, uh, regulating it as an issue of um, public health and an, as an issue of human rights. And this is an extremely good step that builds up in this precedent on Colombia. So here in Colombia, we're definitely uh, celebrating with our sisters in Mexico for this achievement. Mm. 
And Rebecca Ramos, if you can explain how um, it works in Mexico, access to abortion still considered unlawful uh, in two-thirds of Mexican states, but people in those states can still get abortions if they go to federal clinics. Explain how accessible those are and what's the difference between the local clinic and the federal clinic. Yes, of course. Well, here in Mexico, we are a, a federal state as, as the state, uh, United States. But the thing is that in terms of the regulation of abortion, uh, we have uh, the the criminal uh, topic that is uh, at the local state. And in case of the of the public services of health, we have two two levels: the federal and the state level. And at the state level, we we have already uh, twelve states that have been decriminalized abortion, uh, whether at the uh, parliaments or uh, for judicial decisions. There is two, Coahuila and Aguascalientes, but uh, also the federal hospitals bring services uh, to to the population and they cover uh, almost the 70% of people in the country. But before these uh, Wednesday decisions, we have uh, at the federal level the crime of abortion, the the absolute criminalization of abortion. So that uh, that made impossible to the federal co- uh, to the federal uh, services of health to provide the services. That is why uh, yesterday on, on Wednesday, sorry, uh, we celebrate so much this decision for the Supreme Court because with this uh, decision. The federal uh, services have to uh, provide abortion services. I mean, there's something very interesting happening also between the United States and Mexico. Um, As women uh, win this battle over decriminalization, though you have much further to go in all of these states, in the United States, reproductive rights are being severely curtailed. And now, um, uh, looking at a piece um, by Jonathan Bruce uh, in ABC 13, new ordinances would ban driving through cities and counties en route to abortion care. And what this means on the border between Texas and Mexico, that anti-abortion groups in Texas are getting more aggressive to trying to, for trying to stop women from getting the procedure out of state and maybe even in Mexico, that if they criminalize women making their way through a county or a city that makes it illegal to even uh, travel to somewhere like Mexico to get an abortion. I mean, the focus in the United States is always um, people trying to get into the United States. Uh, The question now is people, uh, Christina Rosero, trying to leave the United States to get an abortion in Mexico. Yes, sadly, all the all the rollbacks that are going on in 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 the U.S. are unacceptable, and we definitely are um, really concerned about all the impacts that the decision of Dobbs had uh, since last year. Uh, as the Center of Reproductive Rights, we know that more than fourteen states have banned abortion in different ways or creating limits to the access to this service. And the most concerning thing is that um, the most affected with this type of bans are women who are facing multiple ways of discrimination, for example, migrant women or women who face poverty because they don't have access to the healthcare system. In this sense, 
we definitely are concerned for all the rollbacks. And it shows how right now Latin America is actually leading the conversation on the protection of reproductive rights. And of course, this, this milestone in Mexico uh, keeps building on that. Uh, we think it's unacceptable that uh, women in the U.S. are facing this type of obstacles. And we definitely call for a, a change in this type of, of protections because it is important for them to access to abortion. We know from um, the evidence that banning abortion is not going to uh, avoid that the abortions occur. Abortion is, is going to be uh, a reality anyway. Uh, the thing is that banning abortion, it just creates risks to women and pregnant people who need access to abortion because they're going to go for procedures that probably could be unsafe. So it is important to legalize and decriminalize abortion because this is the only way to uh, stop mortality regarding unsafe uh, procedures, but also because it is a, in an important recognition of the autonomy of women and people who can get pregnant um, and their life projects. So definitely, I think we, we in Latin America right now, there's an, a really important conversation uh, because countries that are a reference for the entire region, such as Mexico, Argentina, and Colombia, are making changes, going through um, a, a recognition of that autonomy. And we would love that in the States, uh, we can have uh, better regulations that don't ban, especially the women uh, who face more inequalities, who have the more difficult conditions to access uh, to the healthcare system. And Rebecca Ramos, your group here, your reproductive rights group in Mexico, is behind the lawsuit that led to the Supreme Court decision. Of course, in the United States, it's the other way. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what led to um, this legal path that now has uh, decriminalized abortion in Mexico, and what advice you have for people in the United States. Well, uh, first of all, uh, we in, in Chile, we have been working on the legal path for 30 years. We, we have been uh, putting on, 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 on track uh, some legal strategies, not, not also at the judiciary branch, but also with the congresses and also with the executive uh, branch. But the work we have done with the Supreme Court uh, is uh, since 2000, when we started to have some uh, resolutions, not so good as the Wednesday's Wednesday resolution, but that has been very important to work with the justices, but not only with the justices of the Supreme Court in Mexico, but also with the staff and the people who are actually writing the drafts and the and the resolutions. So that is part of our work. And I I, I wouldn't say that that uh, I'm I'm going to to give an advice to the to the U.S. Uh, organization, but I can share with them that uh, we in Mexico we have worked at all different uh, branches, as as I said, uh, in terms of the judiciary branch, but also the executive and the and the legislative branch. But also, and I think that it is something that we share with the United States, is the importance to work at the state level, not only at the federal level, and most of all in a situation uh, that the nowadays in the in the states with this uh, Supreme Court that, that is very conservative, conservative. So I think that in the states, of course, there are uh, more conservative congresses uh, than than others. But I think that 
it has been very um, interesting how in Mexico has uh, worked the the job and the and the technical advice with those uh, with with the state level of authorities. And I wanted to ask you about the political landscape now in Mexico, Rebecca. I mean, you have the two presidential contenders, the top contenders, are both women, which means uh, in 2024 you'll have a woman president, most likely, um, and abortion is decriminalized. The significance of this and how Mexico came to this point. I think that uh, what is happening right now in the political escape is it's really important, most of all in terms of representation and also on uh, political participation of women. It's the first time that uh, a woman would be a, a president in, in our country. Uh, just before, there has been some women candidates for the presidents, but none of them had a real chance to to become a, a president. So I think that it is a, a great time uh, in terms of uh, political participation, but it is also through true that uh, in a state level and a municipal level, there there still have a lot of violence, uh, a political violence against uh, women. I think that in terms of representation and visibility, what is happening right now with the, with the two women candidates for the president is it's undoubtedly uh, an, uh, a step forward for uh, our political uh, rights here in Mexico. Um, just naming those two women, the former Mexico City mayor, uh, Claudia Sheinbaum, uh, is also a climate scientist. She's with AMLO's party, Andres Manuel López Obrador, the current president, uh, and the opposition candidate, Xochitl uh, Galvez. I want to thank you both for being with us. Uh, this has been a fascinating discussion, and we'll continue to follow reproductive rights developments throughout Latin America. Rebecca Ramos, executive director of the Reproductive Rights Group's Group Hire, speaking to us from Mexico City, and Cristina Rosero, senior legal advisor for the Center for Reproductive Rights, based in Bogota, Colombia. This is Democracy Now! When we come up back, we go to the dire conditions inside the Fulton County Jail, where Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants were recently booked. Ten prisoners have now died in the jail's custody this year, the latest last Sunday. Stay with us.
Scattering by Steve Gunn and David Moore, featuring Bing and Ruth. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Atlanta with an update from the Fulton County Jail, where Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants face RICO charges were recently processed. The jail was in the spotlight before Trump arrived, after it came under federal investigation for the death of LaShawn Thompson, who was allegedly eaten alive by insects and bedbugs while living in filth, imprisoned in his cell. His family reached a $4 million settlement with Fulton County last month. Now another man has died in Fulton County custody, the 10th this year. 24-year-old Chandre Delmore was found unresponsive in his cell August 31st after spending five months in the Fulton County Jail. Preliminary findings show the otherwise healthy Delmore died Sunday of cardiac arrest. He was given a compassionate release bond the day after he was taken to the hospital. His family said by the time they were told Delmore was intensive care, there was no brain activity. This is his mother, Natasha Holomont. My son was so loving, he wouldn't harm anybody. He, he didn't deserve to die like this. He had his whole life ahead of him. I can't even understand getting a phone call saying he's in ICU. I wasn't expecting to see my son in the condition that he was in when I came out here. I thought I would be able to take my son with me back home. But um, that didn't happen, and I want answers. I want to know what happened to my son. I want to know why he had to die. For more, we're joined by Mauli Mel Davis, attorney for the family of Chandra Delmore. Welcome to Democracy Now! Thanks for joining us from Atlanta. Explain what you understand happened. I was finding it hard to say uh, the prison granted him compassionate release in light of what has taken place. Uh, good morning, Amy. And this is, um, again, another tragedy in the Fulton County Jail. And what happened is a, a mystery to, to this family, to all of us. Um, Chandra was a by all accounts, a healthy 24-year-old who uh, they say has died as a result of cardiac arrest. So uh, right now, as we speak, we are preparing for a second independent autopsy so that we can try to get some answers that this family so desperately deserves. But this is systemic. This is not a one-off, as you mentioned um, in the intro. This has been ongoing in the Fulton County Jail. Um, our firm has um, three other families who uh, have lost loved ones in the Fulton County Jail over the last 18 months. Now, just understand what took place before last Sunday. Um, Chandra was 24 years old, found unresponsive in a cell. And then what happened? Then it's our understanding that um, there was some delay in performing in an, in an attempt to resuscitate him, and then he was transported to Grady Hospital. By the time he was at Grady Hospital, from all the reports that the family has received, he was already uh, likely brain dead. And they arrived. There was no brain activity. There was—they had no conversations with him. Um, he was non-responsive by the time they arrived, and they flew in from Louisiana the very next day that they heard the news. And so— um, again, 
it, it's really inexplicable how this could happen to uh, a healthy young man. And we have not received any answers. And so we're really asking for an extraordinary measure by the uh, Fulton County Sheriff to release and open the jail up and allow us access to go in, view video for ourselves, as well as do interviews with the inmates who were present, as well as the uh, detention officers who were present. And the reason that this is unprecedented is that in most instances, they want you to wait until their investigation is over. At this stage, with as many deaths as they've had, it's our position that we should have equal access and be performing our investigation uh, at the same time they're performing theirs because theirs have delivered no answers. And again, it has not ended this crisis in the Fulton County Jail. And just to be clear, 24-year-old Chandra Delmo was healthy before he has a healthy uh, twin, right? A young woman uh, as well, uh, who has just lost her brother. Now, can you explain uh, what a compassionate release bond is? I mean, if he is granted this in the hospital, does it mean it doesn't count as a Fulton County Jail death? You know, that issue is what we were very concerned with is was this a an attempt to really try to have his death go under the radar and release him so that it would not in fact be a part of this growing number of deaths inside of the jail um again the the explanation given to the family was that he was given this compassionate release because they would be able to have greater access to him while he was in the hospital. And so it's, it's again, unclear what the motivation was, but um, we're very suspicious. The whole system right now is is failing um, the inmates, it's failing the citizens of Fulton County. And it's, you know, arguably the most dangerous jail in, in America right now. So you have called for the release of prisoners, and I'm wondering if you can talk about this. Last summer, after an overcrowding crisis, officials outed more jail space. Did this solve the issue? Clearly, it did not. So the the idea that um, this country can or even this county can lock its way out of um, what they believe is a a crisis and it's, it's not working. The bottom line is we have people like Chandra, who has a really not a nonviolent offense, sitting in jail for five months on a $5,000 bond who should have been released, period. That's it. And so what really needs to happen is they need to go through and look at all of the folks who are currently incarcerated and begin to release people because it is too dangerous. They should not have a death sentence because they have been accused of a crime. And that is what's happening right now in Fulton County. Essentially, if you are in Fulton County, it's at your own risk of your life that you have been arrested. It could be a traffic stop for forgetting to pay a ticket and you end up in the jail and dead. That's absurd. And that's what the experience that um, we have been suffering under here for not just this year. It's 10 this year was 15 last year. You mentioned um, traffic stop. 
um, or, you know, dealing with the police and traffic. This is different from the jail. But today in Atlanta, the family of Johnny Holloman Sr., the 62-year-old church deacon killed during a Atlanta uh, police officer-involved incident last month, will be viewing the body camera footage. Holman had called the police for help himself after a minor traffic accident. His daughter said she was on the phone with her dad when a struggle took place with the officers and said she heard him say, I can't breathe, and beg for help. What happened there? You're representing his family? We, we are. And what we have been able to watch, we actually had a meeting last week with the individual he had the collision with who filmed at least part of the encounter um, with Deacon Holloman and this police officer. He's we could hear him begging. We could hear him saying, I can't breathe. And we could hear the aggression of this officer and the continued assault against this 62-year-old elder. And today, the city of Atlanta will provide the family access to see the video footage. Unfortunately, it's not being released to the public. But at this point, the family has to have some answers because this was a— a minor traffic accident where he called the police and then he ends up dead. So there's a lot going on here in Atlanta and in the, in the state of Georgia that the country should be watching. Um, we should all be concerned about. And, you know, the young people from the Atlanta University Center yesterday staged a, a protest where they marched from the Atlanta University Center to the CNN Center to try to bring about some national attention on the death of uh, Johnny Holman Sr. So this I want to get to one last thing, um, and that is you're on the board of the, for the Southern Center for Human Rights, which is organizing lawyers to help represent 61 people indicted in Georgia on racketeering charges connected to the Stop Cop City movement. Um, the attorney general uh, bringing these charges, RICO charges, almost as a kind of response to Donald Trump being indicted on RICO charges. But your comment on this and what these 61 people face, also some charged with domestic terrorism? This is something, again, that we should all be concerned with. This is fascism. This is an attempt to silence people who are exercising their First Amendment right. This is an attempt to have a chilling effect on people who are organizing against uh, police violence, who are organizing to try to stop this ongoing assault on citizens. There has been no way, there's been no indication that the training center that is being proposed would have saved the life of Johnny Holman. No way, because it really does not center the people. It does not address the crises in the culture of Atlanta policing and American policing, which is our lives really don't matter. And so violence against us is absolutely acceptable at every level, at every aspect of the criminal justice system. Maoli Mel Davis, I want to thank you for being with us, attorney for the family of 24-year-old Chandra Delmore, who died Sunday after he was found unresponsive in his Fulton County jail cell after spending five months there. Delmore is the 10th person to this year to die in custody uh, of the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. That does it for our show. To see our podcast, video and audio podcasts, or sign up for our news, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.